another quick overview of the Ramchal, a little bit of a more concise, and I think a little bit more, you know, we got caught up in all sorts of details and history last week. Oh, thank you all for coming. Um, so I meant to say. So I want to, um, I want to draw upon um, uh, two people. I, I read an article by Rabbi Elchanan Mir, um, who's, uh, who is in Shul two Shabbosim ago. It's crazy how fast time moves. Uh, who's uh, you know, a figure I very much look up to. So he wrote an article in Haaretz uh, talking about the Ramchal, and I also want to draw upon some of the work of Peter Cole. Uh, if, uh, translation is an extraordinarily uh, hard job. Peter Cole uh, has a translation. He's a scholar of Kabbalah and Hasidus. He has a, a book called The Poetry of Kabbalah. I highly recommend it. It's available on Amazon. Uh, he manages somehow, somehow to be able to take poetry and writings, and the Ramchal, as we said, wrote lots of poetry, and he manages to render it into an English that manages to convey the sense and the feeling that the Ramchal, and, and really from the Ari, he, he, and it's actually quite beautiful, and he has introductions, and he talks about the Italian Kabbalah, and maybe it might behoove us to speak a little bit about what Kabbalah was doing in Italy in the first time we mentioned, the Arizal, and, and, and the Arizal's mystical circle as being kind of a breath of fresh air into what was a secret that was lost to the Jewish people, or being lost in the sense that esoteric knowledge always constantly has to be preserved throughout the generations, because, you know, due to the limited amounts of people studying, and the even further limited amounts of people understanding esoteric knowledge, so it becomes all the more difficult to preserve an actual true tradition. And the Arizal was this historical breath of fresh air into Jewish mystical tradition. There were earlier traditions before the Ari came uh, onto the scene, but the Ari really went ahead and systematized with a, a symbolism and an entire system with which to characterize the Kabbalah and the Jewish mystical tradition. And the Ari had student Rechaim Vital, who himself spent time in Italy, and many of the Arizal students went ahead and uh, disseminated the Ari's teachings throughout the world. One of the places, one of the main ways stations was Italy. And Italy, due to the uh, relative emancipation of the Jewish communities in Italy at the time, we mentioned due to their proximity to the papacy, so they seem sometimes to have been treated better. That doesn't mean they weren't expelled and their property was taken away and their lives were filled with oppression and the, you know, the, the odd blood libel or whatever. But, but to, to a certain extent, Italy was seen as a place where Jewish scholarship was able to flourish and many of uh, the more modern aspects that would later be seen in Jewish history presaged in Italian Jewry. Uh, onto the scene comes the Ramchal, and I think that the Ramchal very much saw himself as somebody that especially after his revelation of the Maggid, saw himself as another link in this chain. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this last week, but to the extent that the, Ram, the Ramchal himself, I'm going to try not to say Maharal every time I say Ramchal, that's going to be my uh, goal for tonight, that the Ramchal himself composed uh, a Zohar Tinyana. Uh, basically, the Ramchal, using the language of the Zohar, uh, this, uh, you know, this very unique Aramaic uh, idiom in which the Zohar speaks its secrets to us, that, uh, for example, in the Zohar, there's a main section in the beginning called Tikkun Zohar, which is 70 perushim, 70 commentaries on the first Pasuk of the Torah. The Zohar Tinyana, the second Zohar that the Ramchal was responsible for authoring, which wasn't discovered until much, much later. Uh, we only have uh, a few portions of it that remain, but the Ramchal went ahead, and they were, they were written up by Yosef Avivi, uh, Rabbi Yosef Avivi, great Kabbalah scholar of our times, and he turned into the Zohar so he authored 70 perushim on the last Pasuk of the Torah. It was seen as very much a breath of fresh air into a tradition of mysticism that he felt was being lost. Uh, the Ramchal's life 
basically, according to Rav Elchanan the Ramchal's life is, it, it, it occupies two different poles. The first pole is the revelation of the Magda, 20 years old, the, the Ramchal had a mystical experience that we read last week in which he was in his room secluded and he received a revelation of an angelic interlocutor, somebody speaking to him from Shammai he said he couldn't see, but they said, you know, min Shammai nechitonik de legalis remis and temirin, right, that came down from Shammai in order to reveal deep secrets and the, uh, and the Ramchal experienced this as very real, uh, tangible, almost tangible experience for himself. It really happened. And, uh, and, and, what, and when the reports of this got out, so the great Sabbatean hunters went ahead and they put the Ramchal directly in his sights. And, and we enter into the second pole, the second fulcrum of the Ramchal's life, which is the Rodfim, which is the people that continually chased him and the Ramchal. Even though his experience was as real as, we, uh, as us seeing each other, even though his experience, this mystical experience, was, was, was as palpable as possible for him and as true as possible, the Ramchal with Anava, with humility, and with, uh, with, with, with subjugated himself to the rabbis of the Venice Beitin, and he signed on an oath, and he said, I'm not going to go ahead and teach Kabbalah any further. And uh, even though in the intervening years the Ramchal's Kabbalistic output exploded, the Ramchal wrote something like 40 chiburim during that time of different various lengths, there was an explosion of creativity from the Ramchal at that time. And uh, much of that has been lost to us, but most of the Ramchal's Kabbalistic writings came around in the intervening years between the Revelation and the Magid, and then when he finally went ahead and he got married, and uh, also that the... That the that, that he was bound by an oath to stop teaching Kabbalah uh, publicly. And the Ramchal decided after a certain time that he was going to make his way, move a little bit further away, but they had set a trap for him in Frankfurt, and they told two Batedinim in Frankfurt that he had violated his oath, he had violated the deal. And they made him sign an even more difficult, an even more serious and restrictive uh, ban. And, and at this point, they also basically said later on, the same Batedin, that no matter what it is, even if it's non-Kabbalistic in nature, everything from from the Ramchal, no matter what he writes, is verboten, is forbidden to be read, that's not allowed to be done. Even the books that we're going to talk about tonight, the Ramchal's non at least superficially non-Kabbalistic works, they were banned, they were subject to the ban as well. The, the Redifus would not stop. What's, what's fascinating about this is that, is that we almost see that the Ramchal, you know, I asked, I asked Ravnir personally, I said, I don't understand. Here's something, you have an experience, a mystical experience, you've worked so hard on yourself, so you're young, so you're unmarried, so you're beardless, and everybody has a problem with you for going ahead and saying, you know, that this is what you're experiencing, and also due to the, and the Ramchal never once advocated at all for any sort of antinomianism, any sort of breaking of the mitzvahs of serving God in any way other than the accepted way in which we serve God through Torah and mitzvahs, right? There wasn't any of that Sabbatean quality of that God is going to be served through an abrogation of the mitzvahs, and, and that sin is going to be also a platform to service of God, but there was a distinct messianic element to the Ramchal's writings and they certainly saw themselves the Mavak Hashem circle certainly saw themselves in a mystical vein, of course in a messianic vein. Of course, messianism is a, 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 a foundational tenet of our religion, right? It's just that we're, we're very careful with how and where and, and when we speak about it because we know that the Jewish people have experienced a great degree of messianic disappointment, greatest amongst them, probably Shabtai Tzvi. But, but, but the, Ram, the Ramchal certainly had this messianic quality, but never advocated for any sort of antinomianism. Now, they caught a whiff of Sabbateanism, and, and through this, they chased the Ramchal 
Ramchal through Frankfurt, and finally the Ramchal reached uh, the, the city of Amsterdam where they were relatively tolerant, and there he basically stopped his Kabbalistic output until he decided to make Aliyah towards the end of his life and ended up in Akko, and the hope was apparently that the Ramchal, far away from his road, from far away from the people that were chasing him, that he would resume his Kabbalistic studies. And, and who knows? Who knows what, what kind of, uh, what new stream of Kabbalah, what new stream of uh, maybe, maybe a more romantic kind of Kabbalah would be open to us, one less maybe tied in to the, to the, to the overlapping and extremely detailed symbolic systems that beca- of the Ari that became part and parcel of Lithuanian Kabbalah and the Ramchal's later admirers like the Gra. Who knows what would have happened, but by the same token, the fact that the Ramchal was chased, and this is one of the strange, you know, the, the, the way that history works, you know, in, in hindsight, you could look and you could say that even though the Ramchal suffered greatly due to the people that were chasing him and due to the constant hounding of him for his works and the constant uh, suspicion of who he was and what he did, despite everything uh, that he would say and, and, and despite his decision later on in life to just stop fighting them. Right? Despite that, maybe it could be that because of that, that we were Zochet to works like Mesil Yasharim and Derech Hashem, which were works of Ramchal that didn't employ at least an overtly, right, an overtly Kabbalistic uh, doctrine or language, but themselves became, uh, became all-time classics of Jewish history. We talked last week of the Mesil Yasharim as being one of the most heavily printed books, for sure the most, uh, the, the most repeatedly printed book ethical tract in Jewish thought. But, but more than that, we talked about 25 printings uh, during a two-decade period in Warsaw alone, which is just unbelievable. We talked about Mesilus Yashar being printed before Shas, before the Vilna Shas was printed by the widow and brothers Ram's press. I mean, this book was foundational. Perhaps that's what maybe because of the fact that Ramchal was pushed to give up Kabbalistic teaching and to make his way to Amsterdam and to take up a job as a, uh, as a diamond cutter and, and to go ahead and, and to focus on this, on this kind of teaching. How you doing? Right? So, so maybe that's why the Ramchal, who would have basically been untouchable for the rest of history if he would have persisted, maybe that's what allowed the Ramchal, at least what we received Ramchal, to have been revealed. Back to what I asked Ravnir, I said, let's say, for example, you receive a revelation from upon high. You experience, one of us experiences a mystical experience. You work very hard on yourself. You purify yourself over and over again. And that experience is as real, again, as, as, as I'm talking to you. So why go ahead and sign the documents of these people who don't understand you? Why go ahead and, and just sort of like give up? I, I, it's weird to say that about the Ramchal, right? How could I say he gave up? But, but to cease your capitalism, you have something very real that happened to you, sh- so you should teach it. So, so Ravnir said, at least an interesting thought, he said, I had to ask him what he meant by what he said, but Ravnir seemed to have said that in our world we have what's called, in Kabbalistic terminology, we have orot and we have kilim, we have lights and we have vessels. So orot, are, orot can be characterized, psych- psychologized, our emotions, and sometimes we say, like, I'm going out of my kilim, I can't handle these emotions, and we crack up a little bit, and, 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 and we break down a little bit with the force of those emotions, right? And sometimes that's manifested as tears or bursts of laughter, right? And Hasidus taught us how to psychologize these kinds 
concepts in Kabbalah. The Ramchal received an influx of light, received this tremendous revelation, but he wasn't ready to go ahead and to break the kalim, to break the system based on it. Meaning it's almost like the humility itself tells us about the veracity of the experience. That despite how real it was to him, he still recognized that I function in this world, and because I function in this world, I'm not ready to break all the systems, I'm not ready to cut myself off from the community, I'm not ready to go ahead and do all-out battle ideological war with the Venice and the Altoona and the Frankfurt Din. It's just not worth breaking the Kalim. And maybe that's perhaps how he saw it, that despite the fact that this market, that this revelation was so real, was so, and, and threatened the order, right? When you see a 20-year-old that's talking about these things, so it threatens the order, it threatens the, it, it threatens the neat way of how Judaism is practiced and the way that we encapsulate it. But then again, because of people like this, because of people who don't occupy our consensus reality, who emerge from our consensus reality and talk about these experiences openly, despite what it might cause, despite the, 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 the backlash that it might cause for them, so these people are the fulcrum of our spiritual history. These are the driving forces of our spiritual history, some more overt, some less overt. But it's not for naught that, for example, uh, Rav Kook, later on in Jewish history of Kook in a Circle, the Nazir said that he, was, uh, he, that he, had, he had an aspect of the Neshama, the Nazir, one of the main Talmudim Rav Kook, and one of the uh, main expositors, of Kuk Torah, the one who wrote the Oras HaKodesh and distilled Rav Kuk's metaphysical thought into those volumes that the Nazir said that the soul that he feels is within him is a portion of the Ramchal. Rav Kuk seemed to have been reported to say that the soul that was within him was none other Rabbi Nachman. So now we're coming full circle with our previous Shurim. But, uh, but that's, how, that's how he felt he was, this sort of Renaissance man. So I want to move towards, uh, towards the most important, I would say the most Im- all the books of the Ramchal are, are important. And again, these Shurim are just a way to whet our appetites. Five shirim, uh, the second class now, are, are woefully inadequate to really do anything with it. And again, I turn people, Rav Yaakov Feldman on uh, Torah.org, I keep on going back to it. Just quietly, this person has uh, gone ahead and translated and commented on every chapter. And then there's also a Ramchal organization, Machon Ramchal, led by Rav Mordechai Shriki, Sfardi Tahor. He signs every letter, Samech Tes, Sfardi Tahor, who've also done incredible works. And they've basically emerged with the full library of the Ramchal. Hal's works, including his letters and all the way to his poetry that they uh, that you could order. They've done an unbelievable job. So there is tremendous amount, almost nearly universal respect, uh, not nearly universal respect for the for the Ramchal. The main work I want to talk about is one of the first works that were published uh, by the Ramchal, 1740, when he arrived in Amsterdam. And uh, Misil Yasharim is its name. We talked about the foundational qualities of it, but before I introduce, and we're just going to do a, a piece maybe in, in, in honor of all those who said, including myself, we're going to learn Mesiyos Yisharim, and then to never pay it past the Hakdama, we're going to go ahead and we're going to touch upon the Hakdama, but hopefully in a new light, and hopefully in a way that's mazaris us, that that gives us maybe a little bit of a fire to go ahead and to jump into this book once again with, with new eyes. And, uh, and I'll show you why that's necessary. So we're going to skip source number one because we're going to return to that afterwards. That's, uh, that's going to be the, the Hakdama that's over here in front of you. And I want to focus on the title. What is the Ramchal's... If, if, if the Vilna Gaon is reported in saying that there's not a single word here, there's not a single word in the first 10 chapters that's extraneous, almost biblical notion, that every single word is omnisignificant. So then, what about the title? What about the fact when an author calls their work by a particular title, what is that meant to communicate to us about the intentions of the work? What is that meant to say about the, the goal of this work? So let's take a look at source number two over here. This comes from Tillim. 
So I, I could almost hear, I could almost hear, uh, I can hear Rabbi Freifeld say, I hear his, his voice from his tapes in my head because he gives a sheer, So he says, right? He has the most amazing Torah voice and it's, it's imitable, right? They have to, it stays with you. He quotes this Pasuk and he says, Praiseworthy or happy is the person who finds their strength in God, that they go ahead and when they're looking, Hashem Uzi Uzi, that God is their sanctuary and strength, Mesilos Bilavavan, in their hearts. And the JPS translation, which I left, is very nice, says highways, right? Mesilos, sometimes we imagine like a little path and a garden, maybe depending on the cover of the, of the Mesilos Yusharim book in English that you're looking at, it's like this little garden path with flagstones or something like that. Maybe Mesilos Yusharim is a highway, six-lane highway. Maybe it's an autobahn, perhaps, and we're supposed to, we're supposed to go on and go full throttle and, and put the pedal to the metal and drive 100 miles an hour down this highway and move fast and break stuff on our way to going ahead and achieving our connection with God. It could be maybe both those things at the same time. A Jew is able to, uh, another thing Rabbi Freifeld said, that one of the hallmarks of a Jew is to be able to ha- have two ideas, to be able to live with contradictions and paradox. Maybe we could have Mesil Sisharim being both, right, this garden path, you know, and uh, this little pastoral scene, and it could also be that uh, massive highway. So what's Mesilus Bilavavam? What does it mean, the pathways in our hearts? So the Malbim has a beautiful comment over here. We're going to move quickly through these because I do want to leave enough time, and I know that uh, we're rather, these are more truncated sessions. I want to leave enough time to really go ahead and take a look at least at the beginning of the Hakdama, right? The big uh, lofty goals today. We're going to do the beginning of the beginning of the Hakdama, right? We're not even going to do the whole Hakdama, right? The beginning of the beginning of the beginning. Mesilus <laughs> Bilavavam. What does it mean, pathways in their hearts? Asher Bilavavam Yinsu Mesilus Kevushos Shabam Yashuvu Litzion. He says that the psalmist, that David Amelech Shalom, is referring, in fact, to physical pathways, that these are going to be the roads that Jewish people follow on their way back to Zion. When the redemption comes, these are the redemption roads, right? The, maybe it's the highway sitting in traffic as you come up, right? Everybody knows sitting in traffic as you come up a little bit from, uh, what's it called? Um, you, you come around Mivaseret and you see Moza and you see the, 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 the models or the, the hulls of those old uh, Shayarot from the Independence where I know what I'm talking about and then you make your way up to Yushalayim and finally you see Bruchim Abayim Yushalayim and whether you're on the Sherut or whether you're uh, driving your own car you're like okay I'm finally you know I'm, I'm getting there right the long flight and the time in the airport and the haggling for the Sherut and finally you arrive up a hill that's the Mesila that's the Mesila that he's talking about the pathways back to Zion so it's physical passion these are the roads that we take when we return to Zion. He means to say, Even though those roads, and, you know, and David HaMelech and, uh, and later Jews couldn't have imagined uh, a path back to Jerusalem, let alone a highway, right? But he says that these Mesilos are no longer in function, right? Those roads are stopped up to us. However, he met believe. They are to be found in our hearts, that these physical pathways take on a metaphysical quality, a spiritual quality. The pathways in our hearts are the pathways to one who constantly goes back to God and finds their strength, finds their refuge in God. And, and the vision here is of paved paths, of paths that are clear and known, familiar paths. And we can experience this sometimes. 
times when you go ahead and you close your eyes maybe, or you meditate and you think about uh, a road, you think about a quiet pastoral scene. So the places, you know, we talk about like going to your happy place. The happy place here is Zion and the going to the happy place, that's the road, right? That's the path that we take back to Zion. So immediately we find uh, uh, maybe a connotation. There are other psukim that have the, the word misilo to them. It's a little rarer than the word yesharim in the Tanakh. But um, we see already an affinity between this language and the language of redemption. There is a redemptive, uh, a redemptive tinge to these words of here, to the choice of misila. That, uh, that maybe what we're talking about is, a, is, is if one follows this path, so they will experience at least that personal, not to mention if everybody follows it, the national salvation and redemption. Another Pasuk to turn to, what about the word Yesharim? So we take a look at, 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 at the word uttered by Russia, uttered by Bilam. And Bilam, when he's cursing the Jewish people, and actually this is the point, when Bilam finally utters these words, that's when Balak looks to him and says, what are you doing? How could you possibly say that about these people, right? I sent you to curse them. And he says, I can't curse them. He says, Me mana for Yaakov, who could count the dust of Jacob, or numbered the house of Israel, when Bilam utters out, he exclaims, he finally says, let my death be the death of the righteous. After all the Bilam's career is said and done, when Bilam is going to leave this earth, he says, even though I've been a big Russia, Throughout all my days, I've been, you know, this ultimate Russia, a Russia that experiences whose evil is so deep that they've managed to find the tunnel back to some sort of tapping into divinity, right? The, a Russia whose, whose, whose prophecy is seen by Chazal, at least in certain respects, to be tantamount to the prophecy of Moses. And he says something that's truly mosaic over here, that's truly prophetic. He says, Let my end be like, like the end of these Jewish people, the death of the upright, the death of the righteous. So the Ramban says over here, what does it mean? What's, what's Bill I'm talking about over here? And especially, what's the power of these words that causes him to be shut up so quickly by his, uh, by his emissary, by, by the, uh, sorry, by the person who sent him, by Balak? Bilam said, let me die the death of the upright. And let my end be like them. Lomar Bilam saw the Jewish people filled in a world of people trying to go ahead and to get theirs and to ensure, you know, these people need to be cursed and battle needs to be done with these people and uh, immorality and licentiousness and, 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 uh, and, and a craven and, and depraved world. And he saw these people as nochle gan eden. These people will be the people that merit eternal life. Ki achris adam hamavis. The end of every person is death. We all end up in the same place. Everybody's going to that same place. Some quicker, some faster, hopefully for all, for all of us. After Mayav Esm, after long and fulfilling lives, but the end of everybody is the, sh- is the same. And a long enough timeline, we're all one. He says, when that time comes, when the inevitable comes, let my death be an upright death. Let my death be a righteous death. Let me die well. Turning the page, he says, Hey, Yisrael. That's a reference to the Jewish people. Hanikraim Yeshurun. One of the names. There's not another side. Okay, you guys are going to have to trust me. That's terrible. Okay. I see. I, I guess I could do certain things. I can't copy. 
So, right, <laughs> exactly. So Jewish people, he says, are called Yeshur. And I'll, I'll move quicker through this and we can move to what's in front of us. So, and thank you for telling me. So, it would have been amazing if you would have just uh, preceded the rest of the like, Shaka, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure, Rabbi, whatever. <laughs> exactly, right? Thank you. He says, Yisrael and Nikram Yeshurun. One of the names of the Jewish people is Yeshurun. That we're called as a people. We're called the upright. We're called the people that's upright. Honesty. Spending our days in goodness. He says, let my end be like them. That if you had to single out a specific quality for the Jewish people, it's the fact that you could die a good death. That you can know that your affairs are in order. You can know that you dealt honestly with people. And by the way, you know what's the Pasuk that we say Nebuch at a funeral? Right? We talk about a person that dealt honestly. It's not like these big peens to righteousness. It's just about upright people. What can you ask of a person? You can't ask everybody to be, you hope that everybody could be this world-changing tzaddik. But really what we ask for is honesty. They were a good person. He was a good man. She was a good woman. They dealt honestly with people. Right? I'm, I'm trying to remember what the, what the Kapitel and Tilm is. It's always the second one. So it's the one that, I, that I'm given to read at funerals. He says, you know, that Asher, Kapov, Kesef Lonasam Be, I'm forgetting it now, but it's, it's, Tetvav, right. So it talks about a person that deals honestly with other people, especially in areas of money, Yishurun, that we're an upright people. The final verse, and, and we'll move in a second, the final verse over here that these, both these terms, uprightness, and the fact that we have linkage now to redemption, and a linkage, that's the Mesila, is that it's a redemptive road, and that it's also Yishurun, that it's a righteous road, and that the road to salvation is paved with good works and honesty and uprightness. The last Pasuk comes from Mishle, and this is, I think, the Pasuk where these, both these ideas come together. Mesilas Yesharim Sur Meira, Shomer Nafsho Notzer I'm sorry you don't have it in front of you. Mesilas Yesharim, the path of the upright is Lasur Meira, is to stay away, first do no harm. Right? First go ahead, Hippocratic Oath, right? First, don't do anything bad. Turn away from evil. One that wants to preserve their soul, they have to keep this straight and narrow. They have to keep this path. They have to go ahead and they have to be somebody that stays on the right path. I wanted to show you perhaps what the Ramchal turned to in linking this to the price of Pinchas Ben Yair in the, uh, and it didn't come from myself, and, and I think the best translation of Mesilas Yesharim is the Ofek translation, Machon Ofek, which is based on, they compared uh, some of the better manuscripts, we'll talk about a little bit in a second, because that's the one I'm using, but the idea of both the term Mesila, the redemptive power of that path, and, and following the straight and narrow, and then also going ahead and having the yashras, the uprightness, as we walk that path. Right? Even when it comes to redemptive language, we should walk upright because we know that our affairs are in order with people when we're walking that redemptive road. The Mesilis Yisharim is about staying away from evil. First doing no harm when we we're put into this world. Don't leave it worse than you found it. Adraba, once you have that kind of a mindset, you leave the world a better place when it comes your time to go. There's a sense of a lifetime, the yashus of a lifetime, the fact that Bilam associates that with what he wants out of his life. Even the worst Russia can go ahead and understand that what really should be chosen. Right? They should find strength in, in leading an upright life. Not in, not in going through this world and, and getting yours. Not in pursuing the hedonic impulse. and Where's my pleasure? And that the good life is a life of pleasure. Or now the modern iteration. A good life is a life where I trample the weak. Right? Almost like the Nietzsche and Machiavellian sense that I have to be winning. 
right? And if I'm not winning, then I'm a loser. And that nobody wants to be a loser. Adrapa, a Jew, a person who's Yeshurun, B'nai Yeshurun, so we understand the path we walk in life is, is actually irrelevant in whether or not we're winning or losing. What's most relevant is whether or not we're leaving the world a better place than for fulfilling the Ratzna of Hashem. To move away from, from trying to puff yourself up because inevitably a person that wants to win is still going to trample other people. And that, that sort of kohani way, this, this brazen way of making your way through the world. So, so you can never be a tzaddik like that. You can never be a person that's nochel gan eden. When your whole point in this world is to conquer and to destroy and to trample and to get yours. That's not, that's not what the, the path that the Ramchal envisions. Certainly not Shlomo Melch is, is teaching us in Mishlei. But what's happening here, the linkage is made in the commentary, the 13th century commentary of, of Rav Yon of Gerondi, who lived in Spain, was a Rishon, and wrote a book called Shari Tshuva, which is an essential work also, an essential work of the Muslim movement, and uh, that was, you know, rediscovered almost and became a very important book. People study in Elul, very straightforward book. And what he goes ahead and he does is he says, well, what could this Mesila possibly be? So he immediately links to the Bryce of Pinchas Ben Yair that we're talking about. And it could be that by his a paragraph, the commentary that he has on the Pasuk over there, and that he links it, and the Ramchal surely knew this work, but that he links it to the Bryce of Pinchas Ben Yair, perhaps that's how the Ramchal is, uh, is moved to go ahead and to write this book. I just want to say one other word about Yashus, the Nitziv. The Nitziv in his commentary, Amik Davar, on the Torah, this beautiful commentary they has the Nitziv on this Pasuk, uh, well, not the Nitziv, but the, the printing, in a footnote references you to the beginning, the Hakdamat to Sefer Bereshis. And in the Hakdamat to Sefer Bereshis, which is called in the parlance of Chazal Sefer Ha Yashar, right? Bereshis, where we're, where we're not really receiving that many mitzvahs, right? In fact, Rashi even says famously, we could have started with Shmos and not many mitzvahs would have been lost. So what's the point of Yashar is that before you get to mitzvahs, before you get to what God wants you to do, you have to understand if you're the kind of person that God wants to command with the mitzvahs. You're the kind of person that's ra'oi to fulfill those commandments. And the Tziv says in his Akdama something unbelievable. I'm going to tell you outside, but you have to see it because it's almost impossible to believe. He said that we call in Parshas Hazino, right? So we say, right? So we call at the end of that Sadik v'yashahu. And we're enjoined to imitate God in all of our ways. And God is called righteous and also upright. That God is considered Yashar. And we try and achieve that Yashar by reading about the Avos and Imahos and the Shvatim. And we learn about the ways of, of the Rishaim that they encounter along their ways. And we try and find that Yashar. So we try and find what it means to live a meaningful and upright life. And then we can become Mitzvah and Mitzvahs. Right? Then Achodesh Hazelech. And then it comes time for renewal. So the Tziv says that we imitate God one of the primary ways in which we imitate God, in which we practice the metatio day, I wouldn't be a modern Orthodox rabbi if I didn't have that Latin word in my back, those two Latin words in my back pocket, metatio day. So he says that when Moshe calls him that, he says that, um, that we find many people, he says, he says you have many tzaddikim that go ahead and they, they practice themselves in all kinds of righteousness, and they conduct themselves in all kinds of chumras and, and external trappings of righteousness. But if they lack the yashras, if they lack the midah of uprightness and honesty, and simply being a good person, then Tziv says, Eino sovel tzadikim ka'elu. He says, God does not suffer through tzadikim like that. And Tziv writes those words, Eino sovel tzadikim ka'elu. Ele ba'ofen sholchem b'derach ha'yashar. He says, the only thing that we're looking for 
is people look, walk up right. And Siv goes even further, by the way, and says that this too, this midah could be found in Umas Ha'olam as well. A remarkably universal point over here is that that, that Sefer HaYashar is open to everybody. That's open to the whole world. That this is foundations. If you think you could skip the foundations and go straight to mitzvahs and chachma and, and all these big things, so says, then, then the house you built on it is, 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 is a house that's uh, is a, very, a very wobbly house, a very, uh, a very flimsy house indeed. With that in mind, we're going to turn now to the Hakdama of the Mesios Yisharim. Right, so, it, look, it's tedious to go through all the history, I know. Right? People come expecting maybe a, a Torah shir, But it's so important to know who the figure is and who this person is before you go ahead and you read a work like Mesios Yisharim, which is so deceptively simple. And, and the author was aware of how deceptively simple it seems. And that's why maybe the Hakdama to those people who would be pushed away from learning Mesios Yisharim in depth is addressed, I think, on two levels. One, it's addressed to everybody. Two, it's addressed to like an adept who says, well, what do I need this book for? Furthermore, I think that in the 26 chapters of Mesios Yisharim and the path that ends inexorably at Ruach HaKodesh and then Tchiyas HaMesim, Right, 26 chapters, by the way, talk about a, maybe the coded Kabbalistic nature of Mesil Sharm. 26 is also Keneged Shem Havaya, the name of God, Yod Ke Vav Ke, is also Gematra 26. Right? It's a very important uh, illusion, maybe, that the Ramchal is making. But to see the mastery and the majesty of what the, of what the Ramchal is doing over here and of his writing and, and the, the advanced nature is writing, the way that speaks to us. So it has uh, you know, experienced this in a serious way. And I have to admit, they never really did. It was just like, you had to read Mesilus Yasharim because it's part of the standard curriculum. So the, the encounter that I've been experiencing, you know, when you read Rav Kook very deeply and you give yourself to it and you, and, and you, you dedicate yourself maybe to something like Rav Nachman. So you start a little bit if you're suggestive enough like myself. So you could feel a little bit of the author coming through. And this happens when you read poetry of the great poets. Or, you, you could feel the soul of the author on the page. When you read the Ramchal very deeply and you sense, number one, a deep pain a person that was left almost with uh, nothing and couldn't understand why or understood why but didn't understand why other people couldn't get what he was trying to do and, and we see that this, this project over here that we see the soul as text and, and I said the Sefer speaks on two levels it speaks to the Chacham to the wise people who might be turned off by the content of it which I'll explain in a second and also to the Pshuteam speaks to the masses as well every line and Mesil Shisharim, I believe, can be read on two levels. One other historical note about Mesil Shisharim uh, is that Mesil Shisharim was originally printed as a dialogue. They found an early, what's presumably an earlier manuscript, and it's written, written as a dialogue between a, a Chacham, a wise person, and a pious person, a Chassid. But the Ramchal chose, for whatever reason, to go along with what's called the Seder HaProkim, with the, with the thematic edition of the work. But if you have the Machonofek edition, there's some, uh, there's some expansions of, of certain ideas. In the, in, the, in, the, in the dialogical version that serve a little bit as perish. Okay, so let's, I've, I've read these words, you know, with intentions to go ahead and to finish so many times, but uh, hopefully if I've accomplished anything is that it gives other people um, a push, an inner dachaf p'nimi to finish this work on their own. Amar HaMachaber. The Machaber said, HaChibar HaZel Ochibartiv I've only written this work I did not write this work. I wrote this work not to teach people new things, 
not to tell them that which they didn't already know, but rather to remind them, to remind them that which they already know, and that which is already quite famous and well done. And what the, what the Ramchal, right off the bat, right, with this almost self-denigrating statement, right? It's almost like, you know, A.B. Hoffman, steal this book, so the Ramchal is saying, right, don't read this book. Right? Everything here you know already. Everything here is inside of you. Now, Agav, this might be tapping into, I say might be tapping into a, a Talmudic concept, a rabbinic concept, that really when it comes to Torah, all of us already know Torah. All of Torah for us is Chazara. All of Torah that we learn in our lives is really merely reminding us that which was already taught to our soul. Right? The Gemara Nida tells us that the Malach had the candle above each and every one of our heads and taught us Kola Tarakula. And, and gave us a patch on the lip and we forgot everything. The famous question, why forget everything because of the importance of Chazara? That you shouldn't learn Torah because of the intellectual stimulus, because of the sense of the arrogance sometimes that a, a new idea or a novel concept might give you, or even the, 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 the very real intellectual pleasure of study and information, but for the very concept that we're reminding ourselves of stuff that we already know. That we're reminding, that we're, that we're telling us that this is within us. And if it's within us, by the way, then we have the ability to learn all of it. If we did it once, we could do it again. So maybe the Ramchal is tapping into that idea over here by saying these ideas are ubiquitous. Everybody knows what I'm about to tell you. I'm not telling you anything new over here. In most of the things that I say over here, you'll find that, uh, that there's not a, a tinge of doubt at all in anything that I'm saying over here. Everybody knows this, and it's true, and it's agreed upon. This isn't stuff that there's any machlokis. Ella, however, shekfirov pirsumam, ugineged mashe amitam giluya lakol, kachahelimehem It's hidden in plain sight. It's so obvious. It's so clear. It's so self-evident that people take it for granted, and we all know what happens when you take things for granted. Soon enough, you're dashed the kavav, right? It's trampled underfoot. And you forget about it. And you don't pay too much attention to it. And then, because it's so easy, and because it's so available, so you don't send any time accessing it. It's always there. And the, and the Ramchal is aware of this. The psychological insight here is deep. It says, when it's forgotten, So therefore, he says, this is not a regular book. This is not a book that I read it and I have the intellectual stimulation and I have new ideas and maybe if it's really good, it's new ideas I could incorporate it to my, my, my service of God. It's not a book, it's rather more of a manual because it's not going to give you, if you read it on that level. So it's, the Ramchal is telling us it's not going to give you that satisfaction. It's not going to give you that intellectual oomph. It's not going to give you that sense of, oh, okay, I see what the Ramchal is saying. You can read the Ramchal's other books. And also I'll, I'll say in the same breath, it does do that. It could certainly be read on an analytical level and would reveal amazing things. But just by dint of the, of the word choice and the language, but furthermore with the ways that the concepts are explicated. But that's a separate thing. The Ramchal is telling us himself, the, the to'elis, the value of the Sefer, is not to be gained by a single reading. No, that's not, it's not a book like that. You could go through all of Nesil Shisharim and you can say, wow, tam v'nishlam, you know, shavach borei olam, hadshan alach. And you'll say, I haven't, I haven't learned anything novel here. I haven't learned a single new idea in this entire book. Not, what, what did I gain from this? Avala to'elet. Rather, what's the value of this sefer? What's the purpose? Yetzimina chazara lo This is a work in which a person has to give themselves over to. 
that a person has to subjugate themselves to, that they have to go ahead and say, I submit myself to this book. The same way that one really needs to submit themselves to Avodah Hashem. That there has to be a self-abnegation, a kind of bittal, a kind of self-nullification. And that starts, by the way, it's already, when you see him writing this and you decide to continue reading the book, already you're doing something that's very Mesilas Yisharim-esque. Something very Musar-esque is that you're saying, so then why read the book? I learn in order to gather new information. I learn because I'm, a, you know, I'm an intellectual. I learn because I'm very smart and, and I have the ability to read the Hebrew and understand and write my own comments on the side. But if you persist after he's saying this, it's almost like an entry test. If you persist after he's saying this, so you're already accomplishing something in terms of self-perfection. There's a degree of humility. Right? These opening lines have the function of saying whoever is entering into the gates of this book, whoever is, is starting to trod down this path, so you're doing so with the degree of humility. The foundation, really. It's going to come up later on in the book, right? Humility is smack in the middle of the path, but humility is also everything, when the most important midah. Right? And, and, and surely this was an important trait, certainly for somebody who in humility signed the imprecations and the shvot and the oaths against him of all, the, of all these people who didn't understand him and who chased after him, made his life miserable and said, all your writings are worthless, put them in a box and don't look at them again and don't teach Kabbalah and even though people are coming to you, don't do what your heart is set out to do, right? So that humility and also the Ramchal, we know, associate himself with the biblical Moses, with the Rayamahem, no? And obviously Moses' cardinal trait is one of humility. So that's, that's the prereq. The prereq for studying this book is nothing other than a little bit of humility, especially intellectual humility. And the Ramchal is able to write wonderfully complex, difficult works. Is the same person that's writing this and he understands well. If he's talking to now the Chacham, perhaps he's saying, you might say to yourself, then why waste my time on this book? He's saying, oh, it's a different kind of book. It occupies a different genre entirely. And the genre over here is of a manual rather than a book. If you want yourself to function, if you want your soul to function properly, so here's the manual. Here's the guide for how to go ahead and do so. It's not going to be a book that you're learning in terms of gathering information. Let's learn a little bit more. He says, Right? The benefit of the book will come from reminding people of things. And that the book basically demands now that you read it. Because he's telling you that although the matters here are very obvious, and they will become obvious, and the book will be, in a sense, an act of rem- reading as remembering. Now it's demanding that you read it because the person is going to be curious. Well, what am I missing? What am I overlooking? And, and, and what I really think is, is, is going over here. What I really think is that um, is, is the important idea over here is, is that counter to popular opinion that this book is addressed to the uncouth masses and the people that need to go ahead and to fix their character traits, the boorish and ghast individuals, the book is also meant to get through. Right? The hardest people sometimes to get through to are the people who think they know it all, are the people who think that I'm smart and I can figure this out on my own, or it's intuitive. Right? That's such a trap, that's such a malkoda. Because when you look at Torah and you look at your world that way, so then, right, the worst kind of a person is a person who doesn't know or is convinced of the fact that he's working on, themsel- on himself, or, or she's convinced that, that, that she knows that she's self-aware, right? But, but in education, we constantly this bu- buzzword now, metacognition, right? To be able to start thinking about your thinking. People say, maybe there is a gap. To get these people to finally listen, so that's what the Ramchal is trying to do here. Maybe a little bit more. Could we do a tiny bit more? We only have like a minute, but. Vitira, he says, Ki imtis bonin behove berova olam. 
if you if, if you look now at the majority of the world, how do I, why did I think, why am I so convinced of this reading? Because he, he addresses himself now. He says most of the smart people in the world, most of the intellectuals, most of the people think they know it. So they spend most of their time with, with very difficult, complex, abstruse concepts, you know, that they think are, are right for their level of intellect. And, and, and we think, right, all of us intellectual smart people, we think that our minds, we think that our mental faculties and our intellectual capabilities are demanded in these areas. However, that's not true. That's not true. He says, Some people in science, and other people into, into, into engineering, and into, uh, and into geometry, and astrology, to different kinds of arts. Some people might come closer to holy study. Overtly holy study. They learn Torah with the different peregrinations of Talmudic casuistry. Some people focus on rabbinic uh, stories and, 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 and expounding and exegesis. And some will focus on halacha. They'll spend all this time focusing on, on these intellectual areas. And, and they'll do great things in intellectual areas. But you know what might happen at the end of the day? They might be lacking a yashras. You might be a big chacham. You might be somebody that's, uh, that has all of it, that knows all the Torah. And you could still be somebody that goes in and pushes people in line. You might be somebody that, uh, that, that has the greatest wisdom in, in, in Kabbalah or in, or in financial market. And you might be somebody that, that could go ahead and can cheat a person because you're getting yours. And if you lack that yashra, so go back to the Tziv's phrase, it says, You could be a big tzaddik. And at the end of May of Esrim, if you don't remind yourself of the basics, you don't remind yourself of stuff that you could say, oh, that's from, right? That we said on Shabbos, right? That it's, we said on Shabbos from Rav Shagar, we talked about the fact that nowadays we found that a wall has been erected between the area of the dati, of religious, and the musari. Or he said, in, in, in a way only Rav Shagar could say, right, we've, we've, we've made a dichotomy between Musar Mila El, Musar, sorry, Musar Mila Ra, ethics, Musar, modern, right, ethics and morality, and Musar, Mila El, right? That those two words are now two separate things. That Lashon Hara, for example, Rav Shagar goes on to say, Lashon Hara is not just something to it, right? We have to go ahead, we have to turn it into, we have to completely redefine it, we have to completely go ahead and turn it into a ritualistic kind of thing, rather than, rather than of course that's valuable, but rather than focusing on the fact that it's, that it's wrong and it's evil to go ahead and to denigrate and destroy people behind their backs, which should be mutba, which should be something you don't need to remind people, but here we are. You don't need to have campaigns about it because it should be intuitive to a person who's learning Torah. So Ramchal is issuing a clarion call that for anybody that wants to go ahead and study the rest of his work, so anybody that wants to go ahead and the Pnimis Torah or Limina Torah anywhere, you gotta remind yourself not to forget this. Zachar al Tishkach, that the foundation of all it is Yashas. And you might denigrate it because it's so obvious and so simple. And he says, if you ask these people, they'll tell you, we know it, of course. We're well aware. We're fine, upstanding people. What makes Mesil Sisharim almost, you know, maybe I think what the secrets to its popularity. 
What makes the secret to its popularity is the fact that he was telling people that which, and they were able to go and say, well, you know, the Ramchal's big intellectual, and we know what the Ramchal is, and the Gra endorsed it, but the Gra is telling, even if you're a Vilna Gon, this work needs to be read 101 times, says the testimony in the Gra is. Even if you're the Vilna Gon, these things, even if there's no Chidushim here, even if there's no intellectual stimulus, you know that the Ramchal is telling you exactly what you need to hear. And therein lies the popularity. Therein lies, I think the whole work is a Chiddush. The whole work itself is this great Chiddush. The Torah and mitzvahs and a life of piety are no tachlif for reminding yourself that you need to be yasher. And maybe what the Ramchal is saying, and we'll finish with this line, maybe what the Ramchal is saying to the rabbis that chased him, he said, you know, you're right, I received a vision of a Magid and I scared people with it and people didn't understand. He says... You want, to exp- you want to know what I'm talking about? Follow this path. Follow this path through yashras and righteousness and doing things the right way with modesty and cleanliness and humility. And hopefully at the end of the day you'll see exactly what I saw. You'll come to Ruach HaKodesh. You'll come to Tchiyas HaMesim. You'll have the same experience I did. And you want to know what I'm talking about? Follow this book. It's not Kabbalistic. Follow this book and you know exactly what I saw. You know exactly what I experienced. And then we could be on the same page. And maybe the reason that you're chasing me, well, we'll leave that part unsaid.